0: Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. You
1: know, once something that people like comes out, it's hard to roll that back.
0: I'm your host, Alan Weil. We're recording this episode on November 4th, 2020, at about 2 p.m. Eastern Time, less than 24 hours after the last polls closed in the 2020 election. We don't yet know who the next president will be or which party will control the U.S. Senate. It's pretty clear the Democrats will hold on to the House. Regardless of the exact outcome, we know that there will be a lot of health policy issues for our political leaders to handle over the next few years. I'm joined today by Kimberly Leonard, Senior Healthcare Reporter at Business Insider, and Shannon Muchmore, Editor at Healthcare Dive. Rather than me asking all the questions like I usually do, today we're going to mix things up so I get to include my own perspective on what the implications are for health policy after this uh, consequential election. Kimberly, Shannon, uh, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. Glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me.
0: It's great that you can join us today. Kimberly, why don't you get us started?
2: Yeah, well, it's... um... Where to begin? I suppose we can start first by, you know, here we are in the middle of uh, finding out who our next president will be. It looks like uh, Joe Biden is leading at this point, uh, but some of the races are still very early to call. Um, let's go over first, if, if each of you could speak about what the different healthcare priorities would be under an administration of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Um, specifically regarding the types of administrative actions they could take on health care.
0: Yeah, well, administrative action may be the only option available to uh, either one of them, frankly, with a divided Congress. We've already seen President Trump working with a split House and Senate, and there really aren't any legislative achievements other than zeroing out the penalty uh, under the Affordable Care Act, which is part of why the ACA is going in front of the Supreme Court next week. But Joe Biden probably will face something very similar if the Senate stays in Republican hands. Uh, you, you can't move much if you don't control the agenda, if you don't set the calendar, even if you can pick off one or two Republicans on a substantive basis from a procedural basis, it'll be hard to get anything moving. So, What's likely, I guess, from my perspective is uh, from a Biden uh, presidency, probably the first step is trying to reverse many of the administrative actions that were taken during the Trump administration, particularly around the Affordable Care Act. We've seen a president strongly opposed to the law saying publicly that it it doesn't exist anymore, even though it does. Um, And part of making it not exist is eliminating all the marketing. It's making available short-term limited duration plans that don't have to meet the ACA standards. Um, it's, it's basically doing anything possible to, to minimize the footprint of the law and seems reasonable to think that just on an administrative basis, uh, a Biden administration would reverse those things. Um, and then i the other place I'd focus is uh, this: the Trump administration's been very interested in work requirements in Medicaid, which they've also done through waivers, which is an administrative process. Uh, Those have been held up a lot by the courts, but at least the administration has been supportive of them. And I don't think we'll see those kinds of waivers approved uh, if there's a Biden administration.
2: Shannon, what do you see happening with some of the drug pricing executive orders that President
1: Trump signed? Well, we've seen those also struggle in the courts. Um, Certainly Biden... Wouldn't be one to, to try to cozy up to uh, Pharma, but um, it's, it's proving difficult to, to just tackle that issue straight up um, on executive order. So that could be something where if we do see Biden in the White House and a Republican Senate, that they might try to come up with some bipartisan legislation there, since we know that there may not be a whole lot of room for bipartisan um, success. It could be they they want, they want know that this is a huge issue for Americans. Drug prices continuing to rise, especially as older Americans, that population grows. So that might be something where the group tries to come together, find something they can agree upon, uh, especially... With other issues being very hard to tackle. The only other thing I could think of really that might be uh, successful with that setup would be surprise billing um, legislation, since that's also something that is bipartisan agreement. uh, There needs to be a fix there.
0: You know, I think what's notable is that I don't think we're going to hear much about Medicare for all, and we probably aren't going to hear even much about a public option. Things that, you know, really energize the Democratic base, but uh, with no legislative path forward, it, it, it's going to be hard to figure out what to say about those other than making promises that it's going to be really hard to keep.
1: Right. Well, Alan, you mentioned the uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, justices will hear that uh, with the newly seated justice, Amy Coney Barrett, on Tuesday. Uh, we won't know what the ruling is going to be. But as you hear those arguments, and hopefully we know a little bit more about what the results are from uh, the election, what are you gonna be thinking about might happen um, when we know who's going to be in the White House January, into January?
0: Yeah, this is a really crazy scenario. So, of course, projecting the results of the Supreme Court case are a, are, are a fool's, it's a fool's errand to even try that. You could see anything from the law being fully upheld to being fully tossed out to various uh, severability uh, approaches in between. It seems to me, though, that this is now occurring in this very odd backdrop where one of the uh, arguments sometimes made to the court if they strike down a provision or a part of a law is, well, you know, Congress will come back and fix it. Or if, if it wasn't clear what they wanted, they could just go and do it the right way. And with a divided Congress, that's not a very likely scenario. There hasn't been any desire on the part of the Republican Party to improve or fix what we're seeing as errors in the Affordable Care Act. Don't know why that would change now. So it, in some ways, it's like this is the the Supreme Court's going to have the last word. If they if they take things out of the law, there's kind of no way to get them back in uh, in this electoral map. And then the administration, whoever's administration it is, is just going to have to work with what's there again, uh, without much room to maneuver. The, the, I am mean, the, the most extreme situation of like full repeal, which I I are fu- fully throwing out the law, I should say would be a legislative act um, you know we it it's pretty much unimaginable in the scenario that we're looking at electorally right now that uh, the the next Congress and the next president would be able to craft anything like a replacement uh, it just it just seems unimaginable and and although I don't think that's the most likely outcome of the court case if it if that were to come to pass we would truly have, completely altered the health policy landscape in, in, a, in, in about as fundamental a way as you can imagine.
1: Mm. Um, Kimberly, as we consider this likelihood for more deadlock, what are your thoughts on another coronavirus relief package that's been held up, certainly, but now we're getting to the post-election phase? What might we see? Exactly. Well,
2: I think it's safe to say at this point that a multi-trillion dollar bill is probably not what we're going to see, but we will have to pass some kind of a bill, some kind of a... I think there's wide recognition that uh, there's relief that's needed for the unemployed, that there's more relief needed for small businesses. The main area where Democrats and Republicans disagree is on state funding. Republicans really see it as a bailout to uh, what they say are mostly blue states, that they say. They have mismanaged their finances and would just use the money to plug holes in their budget. It's hard to see whether there would be an appetite by President Trump during the lame duck if he were to uh, lose the election uh, to pass something, you know, in December, even. So we might not even have a stimulus until February. And even then, coming to broad agreement will will be difficult. And it'll be a much narrower package than the HEROES bill that Democrats put together that really contained a a lot of wide ranging provisions, you know, including uh, implementing massive testing and contact tracing national strategies. Um, But they'll have to come to some sort of a compromise and and get rid of the gridlock because getting out of this pandemic is uh, not only, you know, is key to getting us back on track um, economically and um, to getting, you know, life back to normal um, as people see it. And it's going to take a lot more money and a lot more time. um, And, you know, other than finding a vaccine, which even itself won't get us to the place where we need to be.
0: Kimberly, can I follow up, uh, you know, Senator McConnell to uh, just today seems to now be showing an interest in doing something in this area uh, this year, as opposed to waiting next year. Maybe that's because he's thinking he'd rather negotiate with uh, a Trump administration than a Biden administration. But I'm also thinking about the fact that the latest wave of COVID really is hitting uh, the center of the country. Do you think that changes? I mean, the the, the rhetoric of bailing out blue states had some resonance in the in the first wave when it was, you know, New York hit hardest. But do you think that changes now with the distribution of, of COVID moving to other parts of the country?
2: I'm not sure that it does. I think that um, there's still this sort of rhetoric around amid the Republican Party that they that the states don't really need the funding. And so they need to really push further and show that, you know, without it, that they would have massive layoffs um, amongst, you know, teachers, firefighters, police officers, you know, if they didn't have some of these changes. There's also a case to be made for um, loosening some of the regulations around the funding that they already sent states. Um, It's really limited how they can use that so they can change the way that allocated funding um, was already put aside and then add funding on top of that. I don't really see them, um, you know, not making any changes there um, when, You know, there's that pot of money that has yet to be spent. So it'll be a tough battle. I do think they'll give a little bit on it. I don't, I, 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 at this point, I don't really know what the timeline will be because I don't know if the president will want to go along with it, or maybe he'll want to go even bigger and bolder than Republicans do, um, on his way out. Um, and of course, there's still the question over, uh, you know, whether we're going to have recounts and how much longer we're going to be waiting for an answer to the presidential election.
1: Okay. So, Alan, as we just saw, the country is still really deeply divided politically. That doesn't seem likely to change, perhaps could be even more so than, than we've known. But at the same time, the importance of uh, academics and scientists being transparent, being neutral, unbiased is probably more important than ever. How does health affairs think about that and do its best to to achieve trust,
0: yeah, it's a it's a big challenge these days. I mean, part of the trust comes from our peer review process, which is very important in the academic environment that we operate in. Knowing that the methods and the data are reviewed by others, and and uh, there's a process for for making sure that uh, concerns that one person may have about the work are addressed. I, I think the political division. You know, we we edit uh, our our submissions very heavily. And part of what we're editing for is we certainly want authors to have a, a point of view if they have one, but they need to express it in a way that isn't piling on to sort of the partisan language and the rhetoric. So, you know, you can have a very above board scholarly discussion about disagreements, about the role of government, about uh Medicare for all, or or Medicare Advantage, uh, you can have a disagreement about whether the government should be involved in setting uh, or negotiating pharmaceutical prices in the Medicare program, and there are ways to have that discussion that are not partisan. They they can still bring up ideological differences, differences in point of view, but they don't have to sort of push the buttons or. Or challenge the motivations of people on the other side. Thankfully, most of the papers that come in don't do a lot of that, but but we're always on the lookout for it. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges we're having right now is that, and I'm certainly not the first to say it. People talk about sort of science inherently being po- politicized. That it that that it's not even it, it's not even sort of the language you use. It's just even approaching things in sort of Carrying the scientific mantle uh, is somehow seen as a, a partisan uh, position. That that one, I, I I really don't know how to get around. But um, you know, you face this challenge too. I wonder if you want to say something about how how you think about it. You don't want to alienate uh, your audience uh, any more than we do.
1: Certainly not. Um, I think I start with. Knowing that I, I have an opinion, and uh, it's I, I don't subscribe to the idea that I should just pretend my opinion doesn't exist, but that my readers shouldn't be able to know what it is from uh, from reading our our stories. So I, I think I think about it, you know, like I'm covering any other story. Uh, if I were covering a hurricane, you know there are there are facts, and there are, you know conclusions to be drawn, analysis to be made. So I always read, and when I do editing as well, I, I think specifically with an eye toward that. If somebody has an extremely strong opinion um, on what I'm writing about, and I think of it, read it like they would, uh, can I back everything up? Uh, do I, can I show my work? I don't necessarily want to do that in the actual writing, because then it'll be a, a textbook. But if I'm challenged, do I have the receipts to back that up? And uh, as long as I feel confident that I could say that to anybody, uh, then I keep it in. But if I don't, well, maybe maybe I need to tone it down. Maybe I need to cut that part out. Just always have to think about it as if, uh, you know, the person that would most want to challenge it was reading it. How would I respond? And do I have a good case? And, and then give that to somebody else and my editors. And that's, that's why we have editors. It's really important that they can then say, hey, do you back that up? Show me how, where's the link? Um, where's the research? What about you, Kimberly?
2: Well, I do think in some ways that it's uh, been a difficult political climate to work under, and I do think that sometimes uh, members of the press uh, don't help themselves by the way that they either make comments on television or radio or the way that they um, talk about stories on social media. I do think that there needs to be a more defined line in, um, you know, the way that reporters speak about a lot of these issues. And I think that the way that, uh, we saw the election play out, um, even though it's still, still going, that, uh, that there is a divide between the way that, uh, reporters in, uh, major cities at major outlets, uh, cover Americans and, Uh, what they see as important in their communities, and then the way that, you know, the broader Washington world operates. And so I try to be cognizant of that. I try to take in what I hear. I don't argue with people on social media um, who challenge something in my story. You know, it can also be difficult when you write a story that might elaborate on facts, that exist within a certain healthcare program, but then a senator's office or a congressperson's office will, you know, blast that story out to all their followers as if it's meant to boost their position. Um, It shouldn't be viewed that way. You know, there are trade-offs with anything that we do, and our job is not to obscure the difficulties of Healthcare policy in order to advance a particular perspective or narrative, but only to show that these are the facts as they exist. And so if and then the, the reader or the voter, it's up to them to decide the type of country that they want to live in and what they value and how they think about their health care and the rest of the way that they live.
0: You know, uh, Kimberly, you mentioned that the sort of different worlds people live in. Um, And we do see these divides. Shannon, I wonder if you could comment on if there are topics that you think maybe we aren't covering enough that would speak to people who feel disaffected right now. Uh, If there are uh, emerging issues that you're hoping you can swing more of your attention toward uh, after we get through this election. I think...
1: One of them is in addition to just pricing overall, uh, price transparency, it's something we know it looks like hospitals aren't likely to win their challenge to the requirement that they start posting the negotiated rates they have with commercial insurers uh, on on their websites, making that information available. There's a chance, especially if some third party organizations get in and, and use that information to make uh, more user friendly, consumer friendly um, apps or uh, portals that could let people really have a better idea of what it's going to cost them when they need a knee replacement, for example. Uh, that's something that I think could actually really be useful for anyone and everyone. Um, but it's fought pretty hard by industry. So it's another chance where if we are facing uh, a pretty gridlocked uh, Capitol Hill, perhaps there could still be work on price transparency. And again, surprise billing, uh, nobody wants to get a very large bill they weren't expecting when they did their homework and made sure the hospital they went to was covered in their network. So I think especially when more attention is being paid uh, to these issues, as so many Americans are Unfortunately, having to be hospitalized, having family members, um, these are expensive treatments. It's still unclear how long insurers may waive co-payments for testing for treatment. And uh, especially we're getting new treatments all the time, vaccine, eventually we all certainly hope soon. That, that, That lack of transparency around what somebody might pay out of pocket Expect to pay down the road is, uh, I think, pretty alienating for people from the healthcare industry, and uh, it could be addressed.
2: Shannon, on that topic, I'm curious. You know, a lot of the price transparency rules were put out by the Trump administration. Do you think that's something that the Biden administration might actually preserve of the Trump administration's healthcare policy accomplishments? I think
1: so. Uh, it's it's really hard to roll back something like that. Um, you know, just as if it's hard now to say something like uh, protecting pre-existing conditions, you know, Republicans now tout that even if they aren't always uh, actually protecting them. Uh, but, you know, once something that people like comes out, it's hard to roll that back. And it's it's hard to argue against uh, a lot of these transparency requirements. Some of them are further down the road, but... Once hospitals, for example, have figured out how to comply, uh, and if they're doing so on January one, I don't see a Biden administration saying, "Never mind, let's let's pull back on transparency in healthcare." That just seems unlikely. Um, Alan, is there anything else you think that a Biden administration might continue to follow in the Trump footsteps?
0: Yeah, I think the, the transparency is a good example. I mean, the, the statutory authority for most of those regs is the Affordable Care Act. So it's sort of consistent uh, with, you know, where Biden is coming from, even though I agree with you that Trump administration has taken it further than the Obama administration did. Um, you know, there's this whole area of sort of value-based payment and pay for performance, which... These are phrases that I think often are thrown around w- without a lot of specificity. But certainly, the Affordable Care Act created the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. It created accountable care organizations. We've seen lots of experimentation with bundles and and thing and 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 different models of of ACOs. And again, the Trump administration, you know, early on, I think people were unsure how aggressive they would be, and in in fact. Payment models that require uh, health providers to take financial risk has been a high priority of this administration, which, which you know, it might not have been. Um, that's also an area where I think uh, you could certainly see some continuity. The roots of the efforts are in the ACA, but the the specifics of the efforts have been extended quite substantially by the Trump administration. There's no particular reason. Uh, that a Biden administration would 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 uh, uh, want to turn away from those. Anything going on at uh, Business Insider or at Healthcare Dive that we should know about? Uh, this is my chance to get a little inside scoop.
2: Well, at Business Insider, we're building out a DC bureau. We've hired a whole team uh, that has started this year. This is the first time Business Insider has had a DC presence, although we do have a global presence. But it's very exciting. We're growing our newsroom uh, by, I think, 100 reporters over the next year. Um, we have both a non-subscription uh portion of our website, as well as a subscription portion that really has exclusives and deep dives and interviews with top folks um, in the Trump administration and in Congress. And, uh, you know, just like everyone else, we're sort of waiting to see what the results will be and how that will impact uh, voters and, of course, how it'll impact uh, the healthcare industry.
1: Uh, Healthcare dive uh, certainly uh, suggests listeners uh, subscribe to our daily newsletter. Uh, well, we'll certainly be following up on the results as well. And, uh, in early December, we'll be rolling out, uh, it's a package we do every year that takes a look at companies and people in the industry that have really been newsmakers. Uh, we call it dive awards. And, uh, so people can be on the lookout for that. And then, um, Six months into the public health emergency, we published a pretty big project that took a lot of a look at things like the new normal for hospitals, uh, how telehealth was just rushed into, uh, into service so so quickly for so many providers and um, also things like what nurses uh, have to say. Um, so I direct people to to that project as well.
0: Well, I know it's an incredibly busy time for both of you. There's, uh, there's always a lot going on, but there's sort of uh, never been a time quite like this. So uh, Kimberly, Shannon, I'm, I really appreciate you taking time out of this day to join me here on A Health Odyssey and had a lot of fun talking to you and learned a lot about uh, what you're working on and where you think the country's going. I, I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you, it was a real pleasure. Yes, thank you.
2: Climate change is affecting how we live. With wildfires raging and the number of natural disasters increasing, policy changes are being developed to address the effects of climate transformation. The upcoming December 2020 Health Affairs issue explores how health policy is reacting to our planet's new normal. Don't miss this critical issue. Subscribe to the journal by visiting our website
0: at www.healthaffairs.org. The Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. Jeff Byers produces the show under the direction of Patty Sweet. Brian Dobbs edits the show. Sue Ducat and Sarah Kolk help dot the I's and cross the T's with scheduling. Julia Vavalo produced the artwork. Music by Brian Dobbs and Julia Vavalo. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.